Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Mike Espinosa, filling in for the legend Brian McCain. The legend Brian McCain is out today, um, and we're a little bit sad for him. We want to give a shout out to to Brian and Jillian and their family. You know, all of us in Pueblo are a little bit sad um, about why uh, Brian is out today. So, Jillian's grandma, who is a legend in her own right, uh, passed away earlier this morning. Um, she was, her name is Edna uh, Simmons, and she is a World War II veteran. Um, she was with the British Women's Royal Air Force uh, during and following World War II. And everybody around her loves her so much. She was just such a firecracker. If you met her once, you never forgot her. She absolutely adored her family. She was this tiny little human, and she was just this ball of energy and light. And um, as I left the house this morning to rush in um, for meetings, I I thought how appropriate it was that it was raining because we're all a little bit sadder, but it also felt like a very British rain this morning. And so... um, we're sure going to miss Edna, or as her family called her, Nanny. Um, and our love goes out to um, Jillian and Brian and the entire family uh, as they're as they're going to struggle over the void that uh, this little um, Titanic of a lady. She had a, like a Titanic um, memorial at her house. Um, she was beloved by all of the folks out of the air um at the Airplane Museum here, um, Jeff Chosner, um, Colonel Chosner, he's the DA here, would go and visit her almost every day for years and years and years. Everybody just loved her so much. So we're just, we love you guys and, and we're going to miss her with you. So um, we're going to dive in on the show today. So <laughs> I took a, a little bit of personal privilege today to call up some of my very favorite uh, people um, my some of my favorite colleagues, and you know, you've listened to the show enough, everybody, that uh, we work really closely with Colorado Farm Bureau. Uh, we're really proud of our partnership with them and all the great work that they do, um, but they've become more than colleagues, really, for us. They've become good friends, um, and so I'm going to introduce them individually. Which means Sarah picks on each one of them individually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment to pick on each one of them individually. Sean Martini is the, you know what? I know you guys and I love you guys, but I don't even know your titles. So Sean Martini. Matter. You just, all you have to know is we're the show. So just, you are the show. Yeah. Well, I'll just make it up. So Sean <laughs> is the um, ambassador of cool. I oh. like to say that Sean is cooler than everybody else, including Sean. Um, the new, the new kid on the block, the new Emily, Feel free when you meet him to throw your coat and bag at him. He finally got that reference because he's a child. But that's Austin. Um, he does. He's doing a really good job, honestly, with that uh, legislative liaison um, piece. And he came on 
in the middle of it last year, like maybe mo the most contentious, <laughs> rough session in the history of Colorado for the ag, our ag community, Austin jumped right into it. Um, so I wasn't the only one that throwing coats and bags at him. And then finally, Zach Riley, the short kid of the group, oh. we have to find a stool for him every time he's around. Um, and he is the federal liaison for, um, for Colorado Farm Bureau, but he goes out and throws fists on the federal level for us. So um, did fists, I get it close? Lifts. Yeah. yeah. Did, I, did I get it close, Zach? Gnashes of teeth. Gnashes yeah, of right. teeth. Actually, Zach is about six foot eight or six foot ten, something like that. I don't know. Somebody was making fun of us the other day because he was trying to talk to me. And we were in a big crowd, and I'm five foot two, and Zach is six something. And I was looking way up, and he was getting his back was hurting from like bending down to talk to me. And we looked over, and somebody was laughing at us. So um, I finally determined that I could do like the spread stance, like I was getting down in the three point for. Somebody could have a conversation and with I, me. We were eye level, and nobody it can was, compete with us. It's like so a giraffe some, getting a drink on the plane. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> taking me <laughs> sprawl out for I, it. I'm like, can we find Zach a chair so I can have a conversation? <laughs> or you a chair to stand on? Or get me a chair to stand on. We need a chair. Um, Zach, but Zach, I love so much. Okay, so let's get into it. So I want to talk first about, uh, and we talked about it a lot on the show during the session, um, probably to a lot of boredom of people. There was an ag worker bill that came out, um, and since Brian's not here to make sure that I don't say anything, um, Micah thinks it's funny when I say stuff. Yeah, I'll allow it. Um, and I'll, I'll say it. I really, one of the frustrations with this session was there were a lot of bills that were introduced that had nothing to do with Colorado. So it felt like they were trying on um, a few things to... Uh, to address issues that may be prevalent in other states, but that weren't in Colorado. And I felt like that the ag bill was one of them. So there was a lot of fists thrown over this one. Austin, yes? Yes, um, if only it was bags and jackets um, being right. thrown at me. But yes, it was It was a tough bill to, to deal with. It came, up, came from outside the state. There was a lot of push from certain organizations that have worked in California, New York, Oregon to pass similar measures. Um, and, and they did it successfully here as well. Um, do you want me to go through a bit of what the bill has done to change the ag labor policy here in the state? Yeah, would you really quick? Because I don't know if a, a lot of people, it's not the sexiest bill, so people weren't really paying attention to it. So yeah, no, give us an update. There was a lot in the, the papers that also Kind of made it hard to understand what exactly the bill did, but the no bill weeds, did. Austin. That's the best angle. <laughs> and weeding. Yeah, so the bill did a lot of things. Uh, first, yeah, so it, it took out the use of the short-handled hoe and regulated how long you can um, weed on your hands and knees. Uh, that is in statute, but also kicked oh, a okay. portion of that for variances to rulemaking. Yes, it was very interesting just to, to discuss and, and debate a number of these objects or subjects, especially the, the hand weeding specifications of how long you can do it, when you can do it, who can, who can't do it. 
So that was one piece of it. It now allows ag workers to organize and um, collectively bargain. With that, there's also a key service provider piece that has been kicked through rulemaking that allows for access by key service providers on private property to ag workers. Um, outside of that, it also put ag workers in line with other industries on minimum, minimum wage. And we're currently going through a rulemaking that is setting the overtime threshold here in the state for ag workers specifically. And so that, uh, that's, that's what the, the bill has, has created here in Colorado, changing our ag labor policy. But it's not done there. Like I said, we have been going through a rulemaking process. That rulemaking process started at the first of, well, the end of July, 1st of August, the director of Department of Labor and Employment has come mm -hmm. out to a number of different ag operations as well as midsummer meetings to talk with ag producers about their concerns and, and the way that they operate their, their operations to get a better understanding of how the rules can affect and, and the rules that best fit them. So that started midsummer. We had a pre-rulemaking meeting at the 1st of August, one for the labor conditions rules, which is rules proposed for access by key service providers and heat regulations. That's another piece of the legislation that we now have to um, in, in, enact heat, water, and shade regulations for workers. That's going through the rulemaking. And then another pre-rulemaking pre meeting um, for wage and hour rules. So we've already, the organizations, both ag organizations and um, labor active or labor um, advocates have both submitted pre-comment or pre-rulemaking uh, comments on both the wage and hour and the labor conditions rules. We expect to see the wage and hour rules come out later on this week and we'll have a better understanding of what exactly we will be commenting on after that because we still have two more bites of the apple. We have another opportunity to provide public comment as well as attend a public hearing and provide public input there as well. The public hearing will be at the 1st of, of November and then the wage and hour rules will be finalized at the end of November and finally enacted um, at the end of January. We are also going through the labor conditions rulemakings where the- So Austin, wait, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you for just a second because- um, so rulemaking for, comments. It's super exciting, right? <laughs> rulemaking comments. Yes. So here's, I think here's the thing. And I'm looking at you when I say this, Micah. Um, so to tell you the truth, I've been around ag my entire life, but I have never, I've never been an ag producer. So when this all started to come up, I had no idea what any of this was. I had to go and get an education. So I'm going to say, ask some questions. You've got a lot of, probably got a lot of questions about what any of this means. I know I had some questions. So can we go back really quick? Because I want to say why this is all a big deal. Say, yeah, probably go some more background. So go it. background really quick. So, um, but the first thing I'm going to say is I'm really shocked that there's not, there weren't rules already in place for any of these things. Yeah, so going back in the, to, to start with this whole issue, this whole issue actually started during the New Deal time in the 1940s and depression, whenever 
the overtime and minimum, minimum wage laws were first enacted federally. And at the federal level, ag workers were exempt from these rules. And it was the state's job after that really to put them under those rules as long, I mean, if, as long as they weren't in interstate commerce, they were not required. So there were already federal rules in place. Yes, they were, but at the federal level, even ag workers were exempt from that level as well. So we haven't had to be under these rules, but it is a growing trend throughout the states to include ag workers in these rules now. It bears it bears talking about sort of why that's the case though too, right? I think I mean, so. yeah, and, and that's and that's the trick, and that's why the, this was a, a bill that precisely nobody was asking for um, because it was it was it was not a problem that needed solving. Um, we have you know, and agricultural workers are not a part of of traditional labor laws because agriculture isn't a traditional industry. Those laws are constructed in a way to protect people who are working in a factory or working a white collar job or whatever have you, traditional types of work. Um, and as Austin mentioned, it's the kind, it's specific to the kind of industry we had uh, back in the forties and fifties. There's lots of manufacturing, lots of line work, that kind of thing. Those types of, of regulatory frameworks were put in place to protect people in those kinds of jobs. That's not agriculture. Um, you know, we talk about <clears throat> the number of hours you have to work in a week. Well, during harvest, it's significantly more than 40. And then a couple right. of a weeks after harvest, it, you may work 10. Like it's, it's extremely um, hot and cold um, with, uh, with the hours that we work. The conditions that we work are different and are, are, are not going to be the same as the kinds of conditions that somebody in a factory is working in. And so Agriculture wasn't put into that framework because it was an, it, the lawmakers at the time acknowledged the fact that it's so different um, that, that there's no way we can have the same sort of parity there. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the difficulty we had with the bill uh, last session was getting lawmakers to, to understand that again, and many of them don't. Yeah, you, well, can't, it, turn off, you can't turn off a cow and you can't, you can't hold, on, hold off storms from happening and forcing you to work more hours, so. It's unique. I guess that is unique. Or less hours challenges. either. Or like if hours. you have yeah. to, if they have to pull that. Okay. So this short handled hoe thing, I Stop. don't, <laughs> I don't understand this. I don't understand why this was a part of the discussion. I don't understand the issue. And I don't understand why this just keeps coming up. Well, because the perception is, is that long hoes are, easier and it's also become a it's also become a symbol for the movement for ag labor movement from california on to say that they have taken away a tool that is used to to harm workers when it's used prevalently because it is a useful tool and better than than using a long handled hoe or other uh other tools mainly in our high density crop areas and the organics they use these short handled tools because or short hand short handled hose because they either can't use the tool or it's actually easier to to deal with the weeds and um chop up the soil than it is to use another tool why would anybody feel the need to legislate the length of a handle on any tool i mean it's sensational right i mean now we legislate based on emotion and not reason. Uh, they think that by legislating a tool or an implement such as the 
you know, El Brazo del Diablo is somehow useful in a bigger emotional discussion to control, you know, what what is moving forward so that you can prevent the other side's argument being um, legitimized. So is that, Zach, is this happening in other states? It's happened in uh, multiple states. Um, Austin actually put together Austin is a junior attorney, and he is very um, effective at compiling information and data, um, and very happy to have him on board for that reason, because that's not my forte. But yeah, there uh, are, are 13 states. other states mm-hmm. currently yep. have uh, ag labor laws uh, in place. Around um, the length of a ha- hoe handle. Uh, yes. Six other states have hoe uh, handled. Yeah. Uh, hose, short hose, uh, short handled hose uh, in their league. We had a lot of talking about hose this session, apparently. it's It's been tough. Uh, it's been really tough. We've seen real demonstrations in committee rooms on hose. It's, mm-hmm. it's been tough. And look, there's, there's, it's not that there's no justification for, for increasing standards of, of worker protection and, and that sort of thing within the agriculture industry. Look, it's, it's a question of, of degree, like so many things is, right? And, you know, wage and overtime, there's ways that we can, we can provide additional protection for workers and that sort of thing. I think the, the thing that is different about what's going on in the agriculture industry versus other places is, I mean, nobody's sort of forcing folks to do this kind of work, right? People right. Are, are doing this work because it's their lifestyle. It's what they know how to do. It's right. the kind of work that they want to do. They like being outdoors, that kind of thing. It's, it's not as if we're, we're folks who are, are, are trapped in a, in a manufacturing plant back East and, and have no other job to, to be able to do like it, it was once before. Um, we can have minimum wage standards in agriculture. That's fine. There's virtually nobody in the industry who was paying below minimum wage because nobody will work for anything below minimum wage. You right. can go and get another job doing something else that will pay you more if you have a producer that's not willing to pay the prevailing minimum wage. Most of our, our guys are making significantly over the minimum wage. We can put those standards in. It's just a question of degree and whether or not we're actually solving a problem and making things better or whether we're just sort of putting rules out there for the sake of putting rules out and then patting ourselves on the back that everybody's protected now as if they before they were being abused before in some way. I guess that's the real question here. Mm -hmm. If minimum wage was already being met and in Colorado, minimum wage is higher than other states. Um, If they are, if you see these ag workers coming back year after year, if, uh, there's no like group complaints or there's not this huge number of complaints about one thing or another. If there's federal laws already in place to protect them, um, that it's gotten reduced to we're going to have this big discussion about the, about hose. What is this actually really about? Campaign platforms. One is it kind of like preemptive, like you were saying, just so that, they have something in place. So when the other side wants to complain, we have an answer for it. Is that I, the mentality? I mean, that's my simple take on it. I would say it's well, it sounds really good, it's delivering right? on campaign speeches and uh, campaign funders requests. And right. it sounds good. It's it's a feel good thing. You know, it, it's easy to run for office again whenever you can easily pat yourself on the back and say that you protected somebody from having to 
use a short handled hoe and injuring their back whenever the reality is, is it's not a, like Sean said, it's not a forced thing. It's you use what works for you. Yeah. Pick a, pick a tool. Is anybody saying you can't? So have we really been re go ahead. I'll say I'm connecting that. Um, the, not only campaigning, but also Colorado is now becoming the, um, center state that is similar to East coast and West coast, um, states that are pretty progressive. And so they're looking at other laws that these other states on the West coast and East coast already have and wanting to, to put them here in Colorado. That's being there at the Capitol. We see a lot of bills that are very similar to, um, states like New York and California, quite frankly. So are there a lot of, are there, um, a lot of issues where there's injury done to ag workers in these other states? I think there had been historically in California with a lot of the migrant workers, um, you know, you think back to Cesar Chavez and that sort of thing back, uh, in the sixties and seventies, there, there was definitely work to be done there, but Again, that's not now, and that's but not that's now. historically exactly. Okay. Well, uh, and the other thing I was actually curious about, if you could specify, you said there's stuff in the in the legislation about like the heat and the amount of water they're getting. Like, what's the so, parameters on like the heat index or whatever where they can work? So the legislature legislation put in that any that past the past eighty degrees, there has to be certain break shade and water requirements that employers have to provide employees that is all going through the rulemaking process as well so they're going to look at if they need to require more breaks outside of the four 10 to 15 minute breaks that are already required under law if there needs to be um, a water temperature requirement they are looking at water quantity requirements that are at all times present on the work in the work site. And then the heat side too is, is heat injury and, and heat training to ensure that people don't, um, don't have a heat stroke or become dehydrated. And so it's, it's those, those laws that most producers are, are already have procedures to ensure that their workers are being safe when they're working. The workers have enough water when they're working um, and also make sure that they have their, the breaks that are needed and necessary uh, that they're legislating into, into law now. It's interesting that this legislature felt the need to put into statute what OSHA was already planning to roll out with on the federal level as an enforcement rule. It's it's very interesting that we thought in this legislature we needed to duplicate federal efforts to to provide for these types of instances. Does the ag community have a history of completely ignoring OSHA or federal rules? Absolutely no. not. No. Uh, it's, I mean, from pesticides to to heat protection to breaks. I mean, agriculture. It, the, the rhetoric made it sound like agriculture makes their workers work twenty four seven with no breaks, no water, no food. When that's not the case, they have. Breaks, well, it's just not have, smart. It's not smart to no. work. It's it's bad business. It's not good for production. It's not good for efficiencies. It's not good for any of those things. They're not going to get the outputs that they want. If they do that, so I. This you one want workers coming back to work for you if you are a bad. No, if they're not being forced to work there, they're not being held against their will to work. They're not uh, none of those things. So. Um, a job like any other job. 
Yeah, if you're not happy, walk out. Want to do it? You know, we're all humans here. It's not as if there's some you know faceless corporate overlord that's forcing people to work in a field somewhere. Like all our producers in the state who run these farms, you know, ninety-five percent of them, ninety-five percent plus, are family-owned. Like we're all humans. The inherent assumption in all of this is that there's just rampant uh, abuse and, and human rights violations all over the state because people happen to work in a field um, and work outside and work in difficult conditions. And I guess that was the the main thing that uh, made me angry is um, it's no secret my affection for those uh, those in our state who produce our food. And that the suggestion was that they were these kinds of people over and over and over again made me angry on a level mm-hmm. that I didn't know I was capable of. And I guess yes. that's a protective instinct in my uh, well, I, I, I think you're on a, a similar path as most of the rest of us. It's interesting that our lawmakers and Twitter users have saw fit to wage war against the food growers of the world. And that seems to be the the vernacular everywhere you go and uh, legislative priorities and statutory uh, proposals and rulemaking proposals. It seems like the war against food growers is growing rampantly. And it's, it's how do we change that um, vernacular and control the, the dialogue a little bit more so that people remember that, you know, food, good food, food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You gotta have it. It's a necessity. And it's sad and unfortunate to see ideological rhetoric over facts uh, win, win the day, because just like we've said, we, ag workers, they do require respect and they do require a, a minimum amount of, of regulation to ensure that yes, they're fine. But the fact is here in Colorado, large part, Farmers and ranchers that are employers don't treat their employees wrong. They don't abuse their employees and they provide, like Zach has already said, the OSHA rules and OSHA regulations that have been around for a couple of decades now already. Um, They don't work them to the bone. They respect these people. And all you need for evidence for that is to go on, um, go to one of these farms or ag producers and ask how many years that they've come back to those places um, year after year and year. And all that's all you have to do is ask that. You don't even have to ask if, have you been treated badly? Right. You don't have to ask that. Just ask what actually happened. So um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit. I'm saying this slowly. We're going to talk about the redistricting map. Um, I didn't want to talk about redistricting anymore. So we're going to let Sean talk about it. Um, Action 22 is, is we've made our position clear. We are happy with the commission's work, um, but we want to talk a little bit about that because I think it'd be good to have another perspective. Um, and then we're going to let uh, Zach weigh in on what the um, federal landscape uh, coming up is for ag because I think um, everybody looks to Colorado and we look to other places to see what the heck's going on. So um, stick around. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back, everybody. We hadn't had a great discussion on ag in a few months, um, and so we thought it would be a good idea to do that today. We've been, you know, we learned a lot. We learned a, we learned probably more than we needed to know about this process, um, like making sausage. You learned more than you need to know. Um, so we uh, <clears throat> redistricting. Um, we we have spent a lot of time talking about redistricting for months and months, um, and this has been an interesting process. So I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't know what else we could say, literally. But Sean, I I want your perspective on this. Um, I sort of it, that the the idea of hearing from you delights me. So let's hear what you have to say about this. Not only the process of this, but but by the way, let me just make sure to reiterate. Action 22's position, the position of the executive team from the very beginning, for the board from the very beginning, was that we wanted a strong rural voice. We wanted the the maps to reflect that we would have a strong rural voice. 
We threw out the concept of two rural districts, thinking that was swinging for the fences. Um, throughout the process, we've, we've liked that. Um, but we were really, honestly, we thought that the commission, they had so many public meetings. They, they begged for input. They really tried to do everything to listen to everybody. There were some pretty weird things that happened um, in the process, of course. But this was the first year they did that. Um, that we had something like this. So, Sean, give us well, some of your... just the sheer amount of time those commissioners... Oh, my gosh. ...read testimony and stuff. I only went to one session, and it was five hours, and I don't have that kind of attention. No, so, you left after, and, like, an hour. No, and that was, like, their 30th <laughs> meeting or something? Yeah, yeah he just know. got up and left. He's like, I'm not doing this. They did a remarkable job, because there was they a did. heck of a lot of public testimony and a lot of comments to sift through, and, boy... Yeah, good. That is uh, an important job and one that I wouldn't wish on most folks. So I mean, well, and and they kind of took a beating, right? People were not kind to them. I waited five hours to testify at one point, and I was the only like I think two people went after me that night. Um, And I can say that um, everybody thanked, like they were like, "Thank you for hearing us" or whatever. But I think we were the only ones that really were like, you've done a good job. You're doing a good job. Yeah. Good job. And we were, the, you know, of just listening. I think I was the only one that said that yeah. um, and that whole thing. So, Sean, you were looking at it from the state perspective, and I was looking at it from the Action 22 footprint. So tell me what you saw. No, um, I mean, it was um, it was a really interesting process, and I think it's something that um, is going to be a good model for Colorado going forward. I mean, our, our organization um, was similar to yours, uh, Sarah, wanted to do everything we could to, to maximize a rural voice and an agricultural voice and one that wasn't watered down by more populated areas along the front range. And, and there's a way you can do that. Um, and they, they, I think they did that with sort of their, the preliminary maps that were put out by commission staff prior to the public input process starting. Um, and they, and that preliminary map really had significant improvements for our congressional districts, especially for uh, rural Colorado. Uh, over the maps that we currently have in place for 2011 that were drawn on a partisan basis. And I think interestingly enough, the, 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 the good, all the good things that were a part of that preliminary map, not all of them, but a lot of them sort of got washed out in the process. And, and we now have a map that uh, has a, a reduced and diminished rural voice similar to the maps that we have in 2011. So, I mean, from our perspective, um, we think the commission did a good job. It did the best it could do. This is the first time that they had engaged in this. It's it's new for Colorado. Um, and frankly, throughout the whole process, we're just really thankful that we were able to participate in it. Um, yeah. In the past, this has been something that's done um, on a partisan basis within the halls of the legislature, and you could talk to members, but really you didn't have much of a way to impact the process. Um, but this time, uh, I mean, everybody could weigh in. Um, organizations like ours could weigh in. We drew our own maps and provided suggestions. And, and it was it was really, I think, a constructive process. Interesting, though, that at least on the congressional side, from our perspective, we're really in no better place than we were prior uh, to this process going through. Um, there was a path there, um, but I, I guess like all um, um, sort of bipartisan um, consensus-seeking exercises like this, nobody's going to come away um, completely happy. And, and I think that's what you've seen happen here. I think the the it's also important to, to note that it's a positive because really, I mean, we could have regressed and gone the other direction or the maps could have been more partisan than they already were. You know, we could have um, 
really damaged uh, the uh, the representation of, of a lot of people around the state. And while I think some of that has happened, um, largely um, this was a consensus building exercise and, and we should be happy for it from that perspective, I think. No, absolutely. We agree with you on that one. So if from the 2011 map um, to this one today, if you were to put them side by side um, and compare the one. So let me back up really quick because I've had questions um, on this already. Uh, even today. So what happened was the um, the staff had to submit a map to the court for their approval um, on the 28th. The court has until the 15th of December to do that. So, you know, there's going to be people who are going to come back and, you know, try to get that changed again. So the process is an ongoing one. So just because the map was submitted to the court doesn't mean this is all over now. Uh, but as far as the commission's work, it's done as of now, correct? That is correct. So on the 28th. So yeah. so if you were to put the 2011 map side by side with the map that was submitted by the staff, what would, what would be the compare and contrast? You know, um, obviously we've got sort of a, a new, we've got an eighth congressional district that's, that's brand new in the, the North Metro area all the way up to Greeley. Um, I think you you will see uh, changes significantly um, uh, to the seventh congressional district, which now goes down into sort of the southern central mountains uh, uh, around Chafee and Park County and down into Fremont and, and areas like that. Um, changes to the second congressional district as well. Um, the third congressional district has sort of grown in size and now extends east. Um, over uh, the I-25 corridor and the Continental Divide there on the southern end of the state and pulls in Los Animas and Otero County. I think it's unfortunate in that area, particularly because of our agricultural and rural community in that area, that the Arkansas Valley is now split between two congressional districts um, uh, in a way that's, uh, I think, a little bit more um, impactful to, to that region than it was uh, under our 2011 maps. Um, and really, I think in the in the fourth congressional district on on the eastern slope of the states and the eastern plains, um, a significant rural voice has been has been uh, kind of washed out um, in a way that um, we experienced some with the with the 2011 maps um, having um, very urban and suburban Douglas County. Um, uh, put into the fourth congressional district. And now we have more of that happening with um, um, chunks of, of very populated areas in uh, Larimer County up near Fort Collins being put into the fourth congressional where they weren't necessarily before either. So again, we're sort of even um, some changes were made, uh, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult to make the case that they are significantly better than they were in 2011, but they're certainly not really worse in any really major way. They yeah. aren't. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, geographically, Colorado's always going to struggle as far as maps go, because you're going to put a, a congressperson over a huge geographic area. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Brian and Brian has talked about this uh, at length about um, staffing for uh, Congressman Tipton, that it's really hard to conceptualize that size. And it's uh, you know, and especially Continental Divide, he said there, there were times where it was, it would have been faster um, to get um, the congressman to the Gulf Coast than it would have been to get them over the pass over right. to um, Durango or someplace like that. Which is like so that. hard because the state divides so awkwardly north to south and east to west. Yeah. To yeah. where, yeah, I mean, just the logistics of it. 
kind of like you said, uh, Sean, I mean, you, you can't make everyone happy, but yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's kind of the, the silver lining, like, at least for the people we represent, it's not significantly worse anywhere yeah. at this point compared to what it was. And I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the, going to those commissions, they reacted like, like it was the it sky was, a, was falling. Yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. The other thing we found really interesting is we were going through this process and, and uh, Brian was saying it, uh, Brian McCain was saying it from the beginning. And I actually didn't absorb what he was saying until we saw, so partway through the process and we saw some maps that came out, was that in Colorado, and I don't know if this is a, a national thing or what, but in Colorado, um, for the congressional maps, you don't actually have to live in the district in which you run. Nope, that is not a requirement to the Constitution. Uh, it's just sort of standard practice, so to speak. Right. Uh, on the legislative side, you have to, you know, you have to live there. But on the congressional side, you don't. Um, yeah, carpet is that, bagging is okay. <laughs> well, and, and, is, and is that a national thing, or are we, or is Colorado unique that way? No, no, that's policed by the U.S. Constitution. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, So as Zach said, carpet bagging is okay. Well, Zach says a lot of things. Zach says a lot of things. <laughs> Some but... states have different requirements for their own Secretary of State's filings that you must have an address within districts, but uh, Colorado does not have that same requirement. So I guess the final word, Sean, from you is um, this was a difficult but healthy process, and uh, we're just going to have to be happy with not significantly better, but not significantly worse. Yes? I think it's a fair way to put it. I mean, the, the commission did, um, I think, a, a really good job. They put a lot of hard work into it. You know, this is a first time out. Um, I think we've got, you know, ways that that commissioners can look back at this process 10 years from now and, and think of ways to improve it, um, or at least different ways to improve their approach um, in terms of how they, how they look at this and how they weigh public comment and the like. Um, but, you know, I think we're in, in solid footing and we've got a map that's um, respectable and should be upheld, I think, by the court. Um, and, and I think it should be acknowledged that, you know, challenges to this map are, are going to be done on an entirely partisan basis. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for saying suspect that. From the start, um, right. <clears throat> which is not something you can say about how this process has played itself out. It's not that it's been completely absent, but I think it's very much a consensus-based process and the commissioners did a pretty good job making sure that they were responsive to public comment and they, they made a map that uh, is defensible, makes sense, is held to the standards of amendments Y and Z. And, and I think they've certainly done that. So Sean, when are you gonna announce your candidacy? I don't think I'm gonna be doing that. I don't live in the right district. So we gotta get to. through. You don't have to. <laughs> Technically not, this is true. Carpet bagging oh. is, le is legal. Be a carpet yeah, it is. Thanks, Zach. Um, carpet <laughs> platform. No, it's, um, Let's we got to get be your platform issue, Sean. Yeah, there you go. As a carpet bagger, right. I would like to take care of carpet bagging. There yes. you go. <laughs> I'd like to support my fellow carpet baggers. <laughs> There's so many They're not. There's so many of you. There's so many of you. All right, Zach. No, talk we to talked us. about congressional, but I mean, oh, we've go got ahead. legislative district. Oh, talk well. about legislative. Talk about legislative. So that is a place, and, and I know Austin's going to want to jump in here as well, too. Um, we're much higher on the legislative maps, I think, than we are on the congressional maps. That, that commission has done an excellent job. 
Um, and they have worked on a really bipartisan, nonpartisan basis to ensure that that representation zoomed down to the level of state legislative district um, really acknowledges the difference in the various areas and the regions around the state. They've done a really good job of that. And that's another place where the rural vote has not been washed out in sort of a way that we've seen in the congressional map. Um, we've got a, a real solid number of very rural districts. Um, in both the House and, and the Senate map that we don't have final maps yet, but at least the maps that it looks that the commission is going to coalesce around are, are ones that we think are, are really positive for pretty much everybody around the state. Um, so give us a couple of examples of yeah. ones that changed that you thought were really, really a positive one. Well, I think overall providing a, a higher number or an equal, I think we're adding maybe one or two um, rural districts to the House and Senate maps. It's made it significantly more compact too. So the districts tend to make a lot more sense in terms of the geographic area um, that they're drawn into. We don't have big extended parts of the map that are drawn into a uh, one of the legislative districts or another. Um, it is a little bit easier to draw these districts because our the constitution allows for a little bit more of a swing in the population one way or another um, off of what the, the the exact number should be in a particular district. It makes wow. it a little bit easier to draw, but it also makes it difficult just because of the, the geographic distribution of this state and some of the constraints that the commission put on itself when it came to identifying communities of interest um, really starts to, to make it difficult to make a map work uh, as as good for everybody as it could when you're acknowledging some of those very specific communities of interest, uh, like uh, the Roaring Fork Valley and, and other areas that they acknowledge that sort of ties their hands a little bit and then prevents you from getting um, as maybe as perfect a map as you would want. Uh, but as commissioners like to talk about all the time, the, 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 uh, the only perfect map is probably one that's not legal as well, so. Right. So the, the big thing uh, that we heard or the biggest thing that we heard with regard to legislative maps were concerns about um, separating counties who shared resources. And I think that was sort of um, <clears throat> there's several counties throughout the state of Colorado who will share a DA or share a health department or share because, I mean, they're just not big enough to do that by themselves or they, mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll, they'll basically farm out like county jail um, and so forth. To other counties because they can't afford it or whatever. Um, how did it? How did the this map or the this proposed map reflect um, those kinds of things? Um, you know, in terms of, of counties that share things, I'm not exactly sure specific to that testimony. I mean, I'm I'm aware of of the of the concern. Um, but I know one of the things that was a, a priority for for ours in the maps that we submitted and, and became a priority for the commissioners as well is trying to reduce the number of counties that are split between two districts within that county as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that was significant, obviously. Right. Um, and, and I think this map has, has done a pretty good job of trying to maintain that. I think the map we submitted had some of the fewest. Uh, county splits as, as any map. Um, that was something that was really important for us. Um, in terms of two counties next to each other sharing, that line's going to have to be drawn somewhere. Yeah, it has to be drawn somewhere. You either split a county in amongst itself or you split it off from a county that it shares resources from. I think the latter is preferable for sure. Um, and I think we're, we're flexible enough at the state level so that that shouldn't necessarily become a problem for those counties in terms of accessing the legislators and making sure that they receive the attention at the capital that they need specific yeah. to those concerns. Well, the, I think um, one of the things we heard over and over again is um, 
when you have when you're splitting up counties, I, one of the things that people weren't really conceptualizing is like, well, if you have two representatives in a single county, doesn't that make you more powerful? The problem was is where you draw those lines because you're like precincts. Mm -hmm. um, that makes a difference. So you can't split precincts. You can't. I mean, there's it's really really difficult. The legislative side. That's all. I think that's a much heavier lift logistically in drawing those maps right. than the congressional maps ever would be. So, um, all right, we've got a few minutes left. I want to hear um, the, a federal report on what we should be watching for and what we should be um, talking about on the federal side for ag, Zach. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the U.S. Congress. I mean, they don't do anything until they do a whole lot of things at once. And this That's past fair. week has been, uh, has really been that uh, August recess apparently gave them a lot to think about imaginatively. And uh, we've been fighting it out. I've been watching the votes all morning on uh, extending the debt ceiling and expanding the debt ceiling and providing emergency relief uh, in those areas and disaster relief where, it, where it's needed. Um, and including the Senate amendments that are most, most beneficial to trying to get to some kind of middle ground in that discussion. Um, so we've been following that pretty closely, uh, trying to make sure that any of those pay for mechanisms and how that legislation goes through doesn't penalize the farm and ranch um, families that uh, are most dependent on um, low cost of inputs to do what they do, and that is grow food. Um, as part of that, we've been trying uh, desperately and I think effectively to protect uh, farmer and ranch families from stepped-up basis. And from what? Will you, from what? From the stepped-up basis provision. Oh, will you uh, tell that, us what that is really quick? I don't know so what that is. So the stepped-up basis provision was put into place a few years ago uh, to basically protect uh, in the instance of a death in a family uh, so that whoever owns the farm or ranch, when it passes to the next person, they don't immediately compound capital gains and unrealized capital gains and penalize the family with a massive tax bill that in most cases, nobody could afford to pay. That, uh, because that would be passed down. So it would be, yeah. 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 I mean, farms and ranches are not liquidable. It's a death tax. Honest. Yeah. So it's, it's protecting from tax. the death tax. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This, this prevents the compounding of that and the increasing by having to pay also unrealized capital gains on the property over the last however many decades, generations, right. whatever, um, and keeps the family farm in the family. Right. And which is most important and keeps people growing, you know, unless we want to end up with a corporate farm situation like everybody's always touting, we have 97% plus of the farms and ranches in the United States are owned by families. So um, protecting that and keeping that in the family is what we're most interested in. And Colorado's reflective of that number as well, correct? Yes. Actually, we're even higher. I believe we're a little over 98% of family farms and ranches are family owned. Yeah. And many of those ranches have been in the family, farms and ranches have been in the family for multiple generations. So stepped yeah. up, stepped up in so, basis allows for that to continue on to the next generation. So multiple generations, three or, or four or more generations. It's not... Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, when you're talking centuries old farms, it's yeah. To suddenly yeah. have 
attacks that you can't field because your farm is not liquidable. You are not cash rich, you're asset rich, cash poor, right. right? You know, you would have to sell off and divide and everything else that goes along with that horrible process along with losing a loved one um, yeah. to afford oh. to pay a government tax that's unfair, unfairly levied against our farm and ranch families. So, well, and all tout farm bureaus work um, and that provision specifically, you know, step, the removal of step up and basis was in the Biden administration's budget. It was not included in the House version because Farm Bureau weighed in and we had producers, thousands and thousands of them from all over the country sending messages into Congress saying, do not do this. You damage family farms and you damage the ability of us to, to effectively produce food if you push this going forward. And of course, there's other areas of the economy that are going to benefit from this as well. But I think it was it was um, a real um, point of success that we were able to drive in as, as much comment um, and really ensure that the folks um, who are writing budgets uh, in uh, uh, in the House understood those provisions and, and were willing to, to make an accommodation for that um, when the initial version uh, didn't include it. How did uh, Colorado's delegation show up on that? On the provision itself, uh, it was pulled out in committee and we didn't have Oh, okay. Uh, mem a member on the committee of jurisdiction. Okay. Um, but it would have been interesting to see it where they fell been. off on that um, because, you know, we, we are a very party divided state and it would have been very interesting to see which way they went. Uh, but John is right. We had uh, just under 7,000 um, messages go to members of Congress from individual family farms. Um, Good. Well done. Telling that story. So, yeah, very well done. Very well um, done. What else? You know, uh, it's staying in the uh, fun vein of how do we keep people working and keep the cost of inputs down. Uh, the EPA uh, has rolled back the water protection rules, the new, the new clean navigable water protection rules that were proposed and implemented in 2020 and is trying to um, propose new rules currently. So Farm Bureau has been engaged in that process as much as possible with this new EPA and just asking if they do no harm to um, farmers and ranchers that are trying to conduct water projects, much like the 2015 WOTUS rule would have done. Uh, WOTUS never seems to go away, but uh, you know, Farm Bureau waged a campaign in 2015 called "If you can't float us, then no WOTUS." Um, <laughs> it's uh, it still holds true. And for our listeners, for our listeners who don't know what WOTUS is, would you just tell them really quick? It was the 2015 Obama administration um, rulemaking overlay that would apply to the Clean Waters Act of 1972, I believe. Um, and that would basically redefine the nexus between interstate navigable bodies of water and those waters that exist only intermittently on private and other lands and give EPA and Army Corps oversight over that water or non-existent water for the most part um, and make it that much more difficult for farmers and ranchers to do improvements or clean out a tank or, you know, dredge a stream, whatever it was, um, without permit and oversight. And so uh, trying to prevent that same type of scenario from coming to fruition is what we're focused on right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then... Um, we got we got two minutes. Okay. Real quick. Yeah, we uh, got two minutes left. 
finally, Farm Bureau has worked very hard with this Congress to uh, try to safeguard against anything negative. And one of the things that came up recently was uh, discussion around um, methane tax and uh, mileage tax. And that methane tax was proposed on uh, 1,500 metric ton. Um, and that was specific to oil and gas producers. Uh, not a big win for them. Um, but there was a lot of misinformation going around that somehow you were going to have to pay $2,600 per year per cow on, on that. <laughs> and so Farm Bureau, we're we good. worked very hard to provide the, the reality for Congress and for the committee of jurisdiction on that, saying that's what that could be. Therefore, they did not consider that they as a part it. of the final bill that is coming out right now um, in the uh, final budget package. Gotcha. So, Well, we've got 30 seconds left. Team, thank you so much. Thanks for Farm Bureau and all the work you do. We appreciate you more than we can say. We will uh, see you in a couple weeks down at the annual meeting. Um, I hope you guys all can make it, uh, and we'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you, you for all you do, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, thank Mike. You. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.